Good evening, everybody. <clears throat> As we do at the beginning of uh, a Dhamma talk evening here at the Forest Refuge, we begin with the chanting of the refuges and the precepts all together. <clears throat> Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sampudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sampudasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sama sampudasa Buddham saranam gachami Dhammam saranam gachami Sangam saranam gachami Dutiyampi buddham saranam gachami Dutiyampi dhammam saranam gachami Dutiyampi sangam saranam gachami Tatiyampi buddham saranam gachami Tatiyampi dhammam saranam gachami Tatiyampi sangam saranam gachami Panatipata veramani sikapadam samadhyami Adina dana veramani sikapadam samadhyami Abrakmacharya veramani sikapadam samadhyami Musa wada veramani sikapadam samadhyami Sura meraya majapamadatana veramani sikapadam samadhyami Vikala bojana veramani sikapadam samadhyami Nacha Gita Wadita Visukadasana Malaganda Vilepana Dharana Mandana Vipusanathana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Uchasayana Mahasayana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami Idam me silam Magapalanyana sa Pachayo o tu
So the <clears throat> title of this evening's talk is Wise Concentration. <clears throat> and we'll begin with the discussion, we, we be, begin our discussion with three Pali words, sila, samadhi, or samatha, and panya, which translate as virtue or ethical behavior, concentration, and wisdom. Over his 45 years of teaching, the Buddha spoke many, many times about these three particular aspects of mind as being essential and the indispensable basis of his own practice. Virtue, concentration, and wisdom or insight. These three form the the branches or the three branches of mental development that are essential to all forms, to all schools of Buddhist practice. The development and the combination of the first two of these qualities or capacities of mind and heart, virtue and concentration, are what lead one into vipassana, the deeply penetrative understanding that comes through the direct meditative experience of the three liberating insights, the first being anicca, the impermanency of all mental and physical phenomena, and the second being dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of all worldly, mental, and physical occurrences. And the third, anatta, the impersonality of all of the mental and material phenomena of existence. These are the three profound insights that lead one on to the final liberating insights, the final liberating wisdom. And as I think each of you here know, concentration plays quite an important role in the Buddhist teaching. It's one of the seven factors of enlightenment, and those being mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. It's also one of what are called the five controlling faculties, or the five spiritual powers, and those being faith, effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. The Buddha commented at one point that the practice of vipassana, the practice of insight, without the support of the uh, of samatha, without the support of concentration, is like sending a minister out to negotiate with bandits without the protection of a bodyguard. In the Buddha's words, as he often did in his teaching, he starts with a question and then he goes on to answer his own question. So here's uh, some of that. He says, if concentration, if samatha is developed, what profit does it bring? 
And he responds to his own question. The mind is developed. He goes on, if the mind is developed, what profit does it bring? All greed is abandoned. And he goes on more, if insight is developed, what profit does it bring? Wisdom is developed. And he asks again, if wisdom is developed, what profit does it bring? All ignorance is abandoned. So concentration or samatha meditation and vipassana, insight meditation, in particular alternating sequences. And it's, they're cultivated and developed throughout our practice. And all of this rests on the essential foundation of the gradual process of purification that comes through the practice and the understanding that blossoms through our exploration of sila, through our exploration, exploration of virtue, of ethical behavior, with its underlying principle of non-harming. As the teachings and as the practices of virtue deepen and as they mature, we come to understand through our very own direct experience what brings happiness and contentment and ease on deeper and deeper levels, on more profound levels, and what brings suffering and confusion, what brings dis-ease. Ethical behavior, ethical discipline, is the basis for developing samatha. The Sanskrit term samadhi and the Pali term samatha refer not only to the achievement of meditative concentration, but also to the cultivation of exceptional mental health and exceptional mental balance. intimately connected to the understanding that the practices of sila, of ethical behavior and discipline, afford us is the recognition, the recognition of and seeing our self-identification in relationship to our maybe very long-standing habits of attraction, which show up as greed, as clinging, expectation, attachment, and our often long-standing habits of aversion, which show up as worry and resistance and anger, fear, confusion, and doubt. These habits of mind are really the primary mental and physical phenomena that create suffering and that lead to what we could call rebirth over and over and over again in this right here and now life, this very momentary right here and now life, this round of worldly suffering, which is called samsara in Pali. These habits of mind are what also keep us from developing a deep and further purifying concentration. 
and these habits of mind keep us far from our main goal, that of recognizing the nature of things, recognizing ultimate reality, thus keeping us from awakening, keeping us from the liberation of the heart and mind. The true nature of things, ultimate reality, is rooted in the principle that all mental and physical phenomena, people, mountains, trees, galaxies, New Mexico, California, Massachusetts, Afghanistan, dogs, thoughts, rain, snow, Canada, feelings, one's hair, one's aging body, sunshine, the White House, your favorite restaurant, Delta Airlines, we could go on and on and on and on, (laughs) are understood, are regarded as being without substantial sustaining essence, meaning as being without any separate, solid, sustaining, graspable self-identity. In order to see the true nature of existing phenomena, we really do need to purify the mental cloudiness, to part the veil, to untangle the tangle that keeps us from seeing it. And this occurs through the practices of sila, samadhi, or samatha, and panya, all of which are rooted in mindfulness. The Buddha, in speaking with one of his chief disciples, Ananda, and this comes from the uh, Kimata Sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya, Ananda asks the Buddha a question, and the Buddha responds. Ananda says to the Buddha, what is the purpose of skillful virtues? What is their reward? And the Buddha responds and says, skillful virtues have freedom from remorse as their purpose, Ananda, and freedom from remorse as their reward. Freedom from remorse has joy as its purpose, joy as its reward. Joy has rapture as its purpose, rapture as its reward. Rapture has serenity as its purpose, serenity as its reward. Serenity has pleasure as its purpose, pleasure as its reward. Pleasure has concentration as its purpose, concentration as its reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its purpose. Knowledge and vision of things as they actually are as its reward. In this way, Ananda, skillful virtues lead step by step to the consummation of arhanship, to the consummation of liberation from suffering. And in speaking to his 
monks and his nuns directly about his own process and his own experience, the Buddha said this. He said, it's owing to the development of virtue, concentration, and wisdom that enlightenment has been fully realized. In order for us to learn how to properly apply these three active forces of purification, virtue, concentration, and wisdom, just as the Buddha did, we also need to learn directly from our own experience and often from some of our most difficult experiences and even sometimes from what we may deem to be our mistakes as well as learning from our quieter and pleasant and beautiful and subtler experiences. So we could say that the purification of the mind and the heart is synonymous with, with this act of learning. And so this evening, taking a look at the active force of samatha, of concentration, the unperturbed, peaceful, and lucid state of mind attained by the practice and the process of strong mental concentration. The process of gathering in, gathering together the energy, the potentially very powerful energy of the mind that's ordinarily quite dispersed. We could say that the initial act of concentration is that of reining the mind in from its myriad distractions and then learning how to focus it by coming back again and again and again to the simple present so that our mental and our physical energy isn't being used up or usurped uh, in unconscious and unskillful ways. This notion of developing the mind really lies at the heart of all Buddhist traditions. One important aspect of this development has to do with strengthening one's ability to focus, to stabilize, and to direct the mind, rather than allowing it to be just carried off over and over again by whatever breezes, we could say, waft in upon it from uh, the various sense doors or from its own unconscious. So in this light, we can ask ourselves, does your mind control you? Or do you control your mind? So for instance, if your intention is to keep your attention on the breath, but the mind just wanders off at the slightest provocation, then your ability to focus the mind isn't yet very well developed. And that's okay, we can learn. One of the really wonderful things about practice is that remaining focused on a chosen object is a skill that can be learned. It's like any other skill. It can be learned by practice, by patient repetition, and there'll be a gradual development.
the Vasudhimaga, the profoundly detailed Buddhist treatise on the process of purification, uses a number of uh, very graphic metaphors to describe the process of this development and the act of concentration. And one of these metaphors that I uh, particularly relate to because of my own experience uh, in creating pottery on a potter's wheel is this. And I'd like to share this particular one with you. A lump of clay sits on a spinning potter's wheel. Centering the clay, the potter brings both hands directly onto the clay, holding, staying there with a strong and relaxed, focused attention of mind and body. Staying, sustaining attention and sustaining the energy, totally undistracted, as the clay is centered on the wheel. Then the potter, with a continued focus of clear, connected, and relaxed attention, with one hand directly on the clay, steadily holding and supporting the clay, the other hand also continuing to sustain contact with the clay, which continues to be the object of attention. The other hand is moving back and forth, up and down, informing the clay at the same time as being informed by it. And a bowl forms. So really quite a a graphic uh, and visceral metaphor for the development and the process of concentration with the mind, with the heart, learning to move into a very focused experience of deepening concentration. The power of a clear, relaxed, and focused mind, a concentrated mind, brings together and re-stimulates itself again and again re-stimulates the energy and the effort needed for the next moment of continuing the process of its own development. We could say that a concentrated mind feeds itself, strengthening its ability to stay present with the object of attention and not attach itself to other things. It's just where it is, pure, clear, and calm quite an energizing, refreshing, and potentially beautiful experience. Because our exploration this evening is primarily devoted to the purifying and beautiful current of samatha, of concentration, I think uh, that it would be helpful for us to explore and learn a bit more about the basis, the process, and the fruits of concentration. And a quote from the Tibetan Buddhist teacher B. Allen Wallace. And these are his words. Like a telescope launched into orbit beyond the distortions of the Earth's atmosphere, Samatha meditation provides a platform for exploring the deep space of the mind. 
the wholesome states that accompany the development of concentration, and these are calm, joy, tranquility, happiness, contentment, peace, and equanimity, along with the deeper states of concentration called jhana, they can't grow when the unwholesome states of attachment and aversion, sleepiness, agitation, worry, and doubt are occurring. Seeing and understanding the difference between wholesome states of mind and unwholesome states of mind is essential for the development and the blossoming of concentration and its attendant wholesome states. So for instance, if you try to concentrate on a meditation subject, such as the sensations of the in and the out breath at the anapana spot, at the nostrils, or the touching point, all words for the same place. And if you're anxious, or you're worried, or you're filled with expectation during the process, calm and joy will be prevented from arising. Worry and expectation enslave us. With the practice of concentration, one needs to be able to let go of thought. And what I mean by this is not be seduced by thoughts. I've often said that thought is the most seductive human experience. People have argued with me and said, no, no, it's sex. I said, no, no, it's thought. It's the most seductive human experience. So we need to be able to cut through thoughts, so to say. Even thoughts that might seem just so important in the moment. And it's very important to note here that this is not about kicking out thoughts, booting out thoughts. Booting out thought is rooted in an attitude of aversion to thought. And that's not what we're going for. What is meant here is rooted actually in a clarity of intention. A clarity of intention. Seeing and knowing and seeing and knowing when one's attention gets muddled or gets lost in something other than what is intended. This is really the first and maybe the most important and maybe the most difficult step of the practice of developing concentration. Why? Because these minds of ours can get lost in myriad mundane and seemingly lofty thoughts and actions, thinking that whatever it is is really, really important right this minute. I had such an experience Uh, during a three-month retreat that was devoted to the development of concentration and jhana that I sat with the venerable Pauaksayada a number of years ago. For the first week or so of this three-month retreat, each day after lunch, I would make myself a very fancy cup of tea. I would take two or three loose teas and mix them all together in a tea ball uh, for my treat for what seemed like a very important and very necessary treat that I needed, that I certainly wanted anyways. 
towards the end of that first week, I noticed that there was a box of tea bags sitting on the counter that was one of the same teas that I was putting into my fancy mix. But I, it had been sitting there all along, but I had uh, not noticed it at all until that moment. So the thought came when I did notice it. I said, hmm, do I really need this? Is all this fancy tea preparation and seeming need, is this really important? Well, quite quickly, uh, my mind came back and said, no, 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 it's not really very much important at all. In fact, it's really not important at all. It's just merely habitual distraction. So, from that day forward, I just made a simple cup of tea with one of the tea bags from the box that had been sitting on the counter in front of me. I drank it and enjoyed it with a lot of pleasure. What happened after this what was, is what was really important. Quite spontaneously, at times throughout the rest of this three-month retreat, the question would come up, is this really important? And it would come up in relationship to various mundane actions and in relationship to various thoughts and various thought patterns. Is this really important? And the answer was almost always, if not pretty much 100% of the time, quite clearly and more and more obviously, no. And so at that point, I would just simply let go of whatever it was. This happened many times. I had a lot of learning to do. So again, the development of a wholesome concentration requires of us that we have insight of some depth and a growing interest and understanding regarding the difference between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. And one of the most wonderful and amazing fruits that inevitably occurs through the process of developing concentration and mindfulness is that the mind and the heart are continually being purified from the various permutations of greed and aversion and lethargy and restlessness and doubt. The experiences that are classically called the hindrances in the Buddhist teachings. Classically, the development of concentration, and for some people, at some point, uh, possibly jhana, is described as the purification of the mind. As the Buddha said, the mind is developed. Samatha, or the development of calm and concentration, actually fairly seriously weakens all of the hindrances. These weakens these unwholesome states of mind. In the moments when calm and joy, tranquility, a blissful happiness, contentment, peace and equanimity, these fruits of concentration, when they, when they begin to clearly manifest, unwholesome mind states are temporarily completely eliminated as well as considerably 
weakened over the long haul. Particularly as one's concentration develops and deepens. And even more specifically, if one's mind inclines towards attaining the deeper states of concentration, jhana. So taking a bit of a look now at how the different factors of a growing and deepening concentration quite specifically address different states of mind and body that can hinder the development of our concentration and that also certainly hinder the development of insight. To begin with, overall calm and the development of a more tranquil body and mind is an antidote for feeling perturbed, obviously. Calm and tranquility free the mind, free the heart from impurities and various inner obstacles and thus give the mind a greater penetrative strength. The mental state of initially applying the mind, initially applying the attention again and again to the object, and the word for this in Pali is vitaka, and then eventually establishing the attention on the object, such as the breath at the anapana spot or the, um, in the nostril area. This eventually eliminates, temporarily eliminates dullness and sleepiness and stiffness. This can also be uh, done with applying the attention to a metaphrase if one is doing a, a, a very deep and concerted metta practice. The sustained application of the mind, meaning a continuous sustaining attention on the object, such as the breath again. The word for this in Pali is vichara. This eventually, temporarily, eliminates uncertainty and, and doubt within the practice, and it weakens these afflictive states to some degree overall. The deeply concentrated mind state of a joyful zest, a bright happiness, a kind of elation in the mind, resulting in the development, uh, the developing focus, resulting from, really, actually, the developing focus and purity of the heart and mind. And the Pali term for this is piti. This brings a very delighted interest in and liking for the object of attention, such as the breath. And with the development of a deepening concentration, which results in varying degrees of piti that are often experienced with some physical sensations, such as maybe a tingling or vibration, uh, at first anyways, Uh, ill will is temporarily inhibited. With the first and second jhana in a deeply absorbed state of concentration, there's actually a great deal of delight and liking of the object of attention, which is actually one aspect, the direct experience of the jhana itself. that object of attention, not the breath at that point. 
And at this point, all forms of ill will are temporarily inhibited. As we continue with this process of the development of the mind through the practice and the development of concentration, the concentrated states of bliss and contentment and a kind of sweet happiness, the Pali word for this is sukha, which in its maturity isn't a, a pleasant bodily feeling, but rather a blissful, contented mental experience. When this occurs to varying degrees through the deepening concentration and then much more profoundly in the third jhana, restlessness and agitation and regret and worry are eventually completely, temporarily eliminated. And last, the steady, undistracted attention of the one-pointed focus of a deepening concentration, ikagata is the word in Pali, with this occurring to varying degrees during the development stages of concentration and mindfulness, and this happens inevitably during the development of concentration and mindfulness, and then happens to a much uh, greater and more profound and sustaining degree during the absorption in a fourth jhana, this one-pointed focus of attention is the experience of a very clear, strong, and pervasive energetic centeredness, balance, and equanimity. And during this time, sensuous desire for anything is temporarily inhibited, or we could say is at bay. As samatha develops and as it moves along, the the states that corrupt the natural purity and the luminosity of the mind and heart, when at least some of these imperfections, these afflictive states, which also include clinging and include self-identification to pleasant experience, uh, and other various other states of mind and body, when at least some of this has been very clearly let go of, has been temporarily abandoned, temporarily relinquished, we could say, at that time, one really truly knows and gains a much fuller and deeper confidence in and connection to one's own practice. And that's a really wonderful experience. When this confidence arises, the mind and the heart often experience great inspiration and enthusiasm and appreciation connected with the Buddha, with the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And if one has a particular teacher, then also connected to one's particular teacher. As awakening beings, when we begin to directly experience and to know our self as purified of unwholesome states, when we directly experience and begin to know ourself as at least partially liberated from them, there's a great and wholesome gladness and gratitude born in us. And with the blossoming and the maturing of this gladness, there's a joyful zest 
and a taste of wholesome elation, which is sometimes defined as rapture, is born in us. And with this joy and the knowing of it, and this part's very important, without any attachment and without any personal identification in those moments, the body and the mind eventually become very tranquil. With the maturing of tranquility, both the more overt and the subtle bodily and mental disturbances that are connected with gladness and joy are removed. They just disappear with the calm and with the quiet. They disappear with the serene pleasure of tranquility. When we experience tranquility, we feel pleasure. And when pleasure is felt, again, very important, without any attachment and without any identification in those moments, the mind is then prepared for deeper, deepening concentration. And of course, the whole process must be accompanied by a connected, non-analytical, sustained, mindful presence. Another way of saying this is that a deeply concentrated mind is a purified mind which opens the heart to wholesome gladness and gratitude with no attachment. This brings the serene pleasure of tranquility, which is the ground for deepening concentration. And on it goes. Consequently, at this point, the mind and the heart are very strong. And so, in this light, the skill that is being developed is one's ability to resist or to deflect the influence of raga. Raga being the Pali word that is literally translated as unwholesome passion. And it's often used synonymously with greed, unwholesome desire, craving, attachment, and clinging, which is really the core cause of our human suffering, the core cause of dukkha. At the time of the Buddha, an analogy that was often used um, regarding this aspect of the development of the mind was that the effectiveness of a well-thatched roof lies in its ability to deflect moisture and protect the contents of the house from getting soaked, with the analogy being that a well-developed mind will be aware of an unwholesome thought or an emotion that has arisen and will be aware of a provocative sense input, but will allow these to roll off the mind and not penetrate into the immediately following mind moments to drench the mind with clinging or drench the mind with aversion. A similar often used uh, metaphor was that of water rolling off the back of a duck, or the feathers of a duck, or in the time of the Buddha and where he lived, rolling water rolling off a lotus leaf.
the nature of concentration is threefold. In other words, there are three types, or we could say three levels of concentration that can develop and that also serve our insight practice. The first of these is called kanika samadhi in Pali. And it's translated as momentary concentration. This is the development and the growing maturation of one's ability to focus on one object after another, after another. The development of our capacity to clearly connect to one object, then another object, then another object, one by one by one, and ongoing, moment by moment. Kanaka Samadhi, momentary concentration. The cultivation of our capacity for momentary concentration is essential for insight practice, essential for vipassana practice. The second type or level of concentration is called in Pali upachara samadhi or access concentration or the translation that I particularly like is neighborhood concentration. And this is a very deep and powerful concentration that occurs just before one moves into the absorption uh, or of, of jhana concentration. And it can be reaccessed or and used for insight practice when one comes out of absorption. So neighborhood concentration is often experienced as similar to the intensity, we could say, and the depth of absorption or jhana concentration, but it's not at all an absorbed concentration, meaning it doesn't stay focused on one object at the exclusion of other objects, as does jhana, as does absorption, jhana. With upachara, or with neighborhood or access concentration, the mind is very, very malleable. It's able to move from object to object to object. So from this perspective, access concentration can be very helpful and useful in the unfolding of insight practice. The third type or level of concentration is jhana concentration. And this is a concentrated mind that completely absorbs into one object at the exclusion of all other objects. And when the mind is absorbed in this way, it's not possible for the mind to do anything else at that time. And during this time, unwholesome states of mind are considerably weakened, though not totally and finally eliminated. It's really only through vipassana, only through insight practice, that unwholesome or afflictive states are totally eliminated. The development of concentration will quite naturally, and does quite naturally, take place in our vipassana, our insight practice. Particularly, as I've mentioned, momentary concentration. Especially when we begin to be able to meet the various body-mind phenomena with less and less clinging and less attachment and less identification. But rather with an interested, 
open-hearted, and investigative attitude. The development of jhana and access concentration takes a very specific and concerted effort. And it's not everyone's inclination or interest. And sometimes it might be of interest, but it might not be uh, a natural inclination. And it's not absolutely necessary for a potentially liberating vipassana, a potentially liberating insight practice to unfold. The achievement of jhana concentration may require many months or even many years of a single-pointed practice, meditating for many hours each day. And this might be impractical for some people, not of interest either for some people. For others it might be possible and worthwhile in moving towards the discoveries that lie in wait for us when we apply the telescope of samatha to explore the deep space of the mind. As concentration develops, slowly we gain the wisdom and the confidence to allow ourselves to wholeheartedly meet experience with no self, not self, no me, no I am, while at the same time being very clearly present and mindfully aware of just what's taking place, but with no pondering, no commentary, no thinking about what's occurring, and, important, not making something out of experience, but rather receiving, sensing, seeing, and knowing experience just as it is. In light of this, I'd like to share a simple and potentially illuminating story with you about two significant times and aspects of the Buddha's life. After six years of engaging in extreme, austere practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart and mind that he was seeking, it's said that the Bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama, asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image in the form of a memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. And he remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual in in that community marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha, quite spontaneously and naturally, sat up in the meditation posture quite comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. 
observing the unfolding scene that was taking place before him with a very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. Nothing really on his mind. In those moments of not wanting or not fearing anything, he was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows, noticing the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened soil. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling of sunlight coming off the bronze harnesses and the dark horns of the oxen. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen, oxen's hoofs. And he heard the cowbells rolling on and on and on amidst the strong shout, shout strong, <coughs> excuse me, strong, sharp shouts of the men as they were working. He also clearly heard the beautiful sound of bird song, as well as the sh- shrill cries of the birds as they dove and pecked and devoured the swarming insects and the grubs and the worms and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering and dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, and the beauty of that spring festival day. All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone, clearly focused and deeply relaxed under the sweet-smelling rose apple tree, open-heartedly experiencing this scene that was taking place before him, and in his mind and heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away. As he silently sat, quite still and secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states of mind, taking all of this in with with no prejudice and no attachment, and finding himself all alone and quite spontaneously and naturally Attained, he attained a very deep state of concentration. It's said to have been the first jhana. And he attained it through mindfulness of breathing, paying attention to his breath. Experienced, and he experienced, it said, a bright, sweet pleasure and a, and a joyful happiness that wasn't born out of desire for or clinging, clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep, intuitive understanding was seeded. As a young man, in the midst of practicing extreme austerities of body, and then remembering this boyhood experience, the thought occurred to Siddhartha, could that be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following, following up on this memory from his childhood, this, the bodhisattva became filled with energy 
and sureness that this, in fact, was a footstep on the path, a footstep on the path to liberation. And he resolved to sit quietly and press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was actually a turning point for the Buddha to be in his quest for awakening, in his quest for enlightenment. This was a turning point and a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. He understood that pleasant experience was no longer to be feared and banished by the practice of extreme austerities. At that moment, at this important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, and hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, and in fact couldn't be, purified or banished or released or relinquished by creating hardships for oneself and then putting up with them or maybe by trying to live through them by stealing oneself, by hardening oneself and then toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or maybe by struggling trying really hard to let go of the painful mind states related to extreme austere practices, or by trying to lose one's self in self-created physical and mental hardship. And if you consider your own life, how many times in small, maybe even tiny ways, or possibly in extreme ways, have you, out of ignorance, out of delusion, out of misunderstanding, been attracted to and chosen to engage in maybe various mental fantasies, various situations, activities, even various spiritual practices, various relationships that created hardship and maybe a certain flavor of austerity in your life or maybe even extreme hardship and austerity. So, in your own way, doing just what the Buddha did and thinking just as he did that these situations, these fantasies, these activities, these practices or relationships would somehow, somehow bring a sustaining joy and happiness and ease into your life. Potentially, a certain degree of mental strength certainly might be gained. But the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, the light of liberation, can never be seen felt or known with this way. 
as a young man in remembering his childhood experiences. Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared and banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would really never bring a sustained sense of freedom and well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, with a heart, that is secluded, that's free from the mental and bodily hindrances of lethargy and restlessness, greed and clinging, free from the various permutations of aversion, confusion, or doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, clear, concentrated, and mindful presence, and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's a valuable and necessary accompaniment along the path to liberation. And that it, in fact, points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, of a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. That, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness and the ease of a heart and a mind that's liberated, that's awakened. In remembering his childhood experience, the Bodhisattva Siddhartha came to understand that the development of a deep concentration, and for him, jhana, is a footstep on the path to awakening, an important and useful footstep on the way to liberation. And as the Buddha expressed it in the Majjhima Nikaya, in his discourse to his student Sakaka, he said, I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states? I thought, I'm not afraid of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasures and unwholesome states. And then the Buddha goes on to tell Sakaka that at that point he made the decision to stop engaging in extreme uh, practices, austere practices. And that very soon after this, he was offered some solid food by a young village girl, and he regained his strength. And then he went and sat in meditation under a Bodhi tree. And he goes on, speaking with Sakaka, saying that being quite secluded from sensual pleasures and unwholesome states, he entered into the deep concentration of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. And with And with each of these pleasurable bitings, and in the Buddha's words, he said, But such pleasant feeling that arose in me did not invade my mind and remain. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, meaning attained to equanimity, He tells Sakaka that he then systematically attained each of the liberating insight knowledges one by one by one through that now famous night under the Bodhi tree. As a child, 
this natural state of a concentrated, undisturbed, purified mind is something that young Siddhartha kind of wandered into, so to say. The world going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. No different in those moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to push away, or nothing to run from. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us. We often have a mind made up. Often absolutely made up about how it's supposed to be or how it isn't supposed to be. What's good, what's bad, what we definitely know is true, what we definitely know isn't true. And we also often have a mind made up about what we must have or must not have in order to be happy and even in order to practice meditation. A mind made up. A mind that clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly, clearly and honestly meeting the moment that we're in. It keeps us in conflict, keeps us shut off from the vastness of possibility, keeping us shut off from the possibility then of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This is essentially the cause of our suffering and what prevents the heart and the mind from calmly and peacefully connecting directly and clearly with present moment experience, both internal and external experience. And, as I mentioned earlier in this discussion, the teachings and the practices that we've inherited from the Buddha fall into three basic currents. The current of sila, the teaching and practice of ethical and virtuous conduct, the current of samatha, the teaching and practice of concentration, and the current of panya, the teaching and the practice of wisdom. These three currents are what carried the Buddha and what carry us along and across the great and often challenging river of life to the side of a very peaceful, easeful, awakened presence, to the side of living life within the natural state of an undisturbed mind. The current of samatha, the development of concentration, maybe also including states of jhana, deeply absorbed concentration, is a beautiful, healing, and very powerful experience in and of itself. And at whatever level one is able to develop a concentrated mind, from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, it's ultimately and essentially to be used towards our main goal, that of seeing the true nature of existing phenomena, parting the veil, untangling the tangle that keeps us from seeing it, 
so that we really recognize the nature of things, recognize ultimate reality, and awaken out of the sleepy cloud of delusion. Our practice is about the unification of samatha and vipassana. And again, from the Tibetan teacher B. Allen Wallace, he says, the transformative power of Buddhist meditation occurs when the stability and the vividness of samatha is unified with the penetrating insights of vipassana. Samatha by itself results in a temporary temporary alleviation of the fundamental causes of suffering. And vipassana by itself provides only fleeting glimpses of reality. So as awakening beings, here we are today, more than 2,500 years later after the story about the Buddha's life that I've just shared took place. And thanks to Siddhartha Gautama's incredibly diligent and powerful years of practice, here we are exploring and learning from his direct experience and his inspired and amazing gift and clarity of his ability to pass it on to others. In closing the talk this evening, I'd just like to say that it's essential that you hold your practice in the light of honesty, humility, and a diligent, open-hearted interest. And hold yourself within your practice with deep kindness and abiding patience. Each and all of these wholesome and beautiful human qualities will without a doubt serve the blossoming of sila, samadhi, and panya. And without a doubt are some of the most basic roots and forces of the purity that the fruits of our practice stem from. I'd like to close the talk this evening with uh, a poem by Mary Oliver and honoring her with this because she just recently died. And this poem um, is called Such Singing in the Wild Branches. And although it's a bit of an oblique uh, uh, reference to what we've been uh, exploring this evening, it does refer in a very moving way to what we've been uh, exploring and investigating, talking about this evening. I have to say before I read the poem is that it's a bit out of season (laughs) here in this New England winter. Some of you know the poem, you're laughing when I say that. Uh, But I would encourage uh, each of us to make this shift internally to a more spring-like environment. We could pretend today was like 50 degrees, kind of like spring, right? So a spring-like environment as we uh, take in Mary Oliver's poem. Such singing in the wild branches. It was spring, and finally I heard him among the first leaves. Then I saw him clutching the limb in an island of shade. 
with his red-brown feathers all trim and neat for the new year. First I stood still and thought of nothing. Then I began to listen. Then I was filled with gladness, and that's when it happened, when I seemed to float, to be myself a wing or a tree. And then I began to understand what the bird was saying, and the sands in the glass stopped for a pure white moment while gravity sprinkled upward like rain rising. And in fact, it became difficult to tell just what it was that was singing. It was the thrush for sure, but it seemed not a single thrush, but himself and all his brothers and sisters, and also the trees around them, as well as the gliding, long-tailed clouds in the perfectly blue sky. All of them, all of them were singing. And of course, yes, so it seemed, so was I. Such, such soft and solemn and perfect music doesn't last for more than a few moments. It's like one of those magical places wise people like to talk about. One of the things they say about it that is true is that once you've been there, you're there forever. Listen, everyone has a chance. Is it spring? Is it morning? Are there trees near you? And does your own soul need comforting? Quick then, open the door and fly on your heavy feet. The song may already be drifting away. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.